In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a weekly smorgasbord of stories from our store cupboard of metaphors and from across our coverage to whet your appetite. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. On the table this week, 50 years after the death of Che Guevara, why Latin America's left needs a new hero. The author Salman Rushdie on identity politics in India, Catalonia and beyond and how your sense of smell could determine who you fall for. But first, the world's most powerful man was our cover line this week. Xi Jinping, China's president, now has more clout than Donald Trump, we argued. As the Communist Party prepares to convene a five-yearly Congress next week, our China editor James Miles spoke to Josie DeLapp on our Current Affairs podcast, The Week Ahead, and he explained why the world should be wary. There is a risk that such a powerful man coming from such a rich country may cause the rest of the world to become weak-kneed and ignore the kind of abuses that are going on in China. And we do see that. And Mr. Trump will be in China next month on his first presidential visit to the country. And it is very likely indeed that human rights will be pushed to one side. To keep up with the shifting sands of geopolitics, download The Week Ahead, available every Friday from iTunes or your podcast app of choice. So as delegates prepare for that powwow in Beijing, over in Cuba, tens of thousands have been gathering to commemorate the death 50 years ago of Che Guevara. In this week's issue, our Latin America columnist, Bello, explains why it's time the continent's left got themselves a new idol. The ascetic, asthmatic Argentine doctor first fought alongside Fidel Castro in the mountains of Cuba's Sierra Maestra. After the Cuban Revolution had imposed communism on the island, Guevara left to try to liberate first Congo and then Bolivia. In this, Guevara was a man of the 1960s. He fermented revolution as Yankee bombers were napalming Vietnamese peasants and when it was still possible for many people to believe that only violence and communism could defeat expansionary American imperialism. With his flowing hair and beret, Che became a romantic revolutionary icon around the world. Ireland this month even issued a commemorative stamp. But it's in Latin America that his reputation as idealist and martyr has been most influential and most damaging. In Colombia, it contributed to the destructive insurgency of the FARC, which ended only last year, and that of the ELN, an avowedly Guevarist group, which declared a ceasefire last month. Nicolas Maduro, Venezuela's president, justifies the crushing of opposition as an act of anti-imperialism. But changing times call for new heroes. So occluded is the lens of anti-imperialism that much of the Latin American left has failed to detect that American meddling in the region largely ended with the Cold War and that most younger Latin Americans see the United States as a source of investment, opportunity and technological progress or at least did so before the arrival of President Donald Trump. Mr Guevara's mistake was to deny the potential of democracy for social progress. By erecting anti-imperialism and equality as supreme values, too many leftists have been complicit in tyranny and corruption. They have shamefully refused to condemn Mr Maduro's dictatorship in Venezuela. 
Not only does democracy offer the best hope of progress for the masses, it also protects the left against its own mistakes. It is long past time to bury Che and find a better icon. People power was in evidence somewhere else this week as Hindus prepare their annual celebration of Diwali. But as a piece in our Asia section revealed, the Festival of Lights might be only dimly visible through all that smog. Along with a shopping rush and a welcome dip in temperature, the season augurs a surge in levels of PM 2.5, tiny particles of dust that lodge deep in the lungs and cause such diseases as asthma, pulmonary fibrosis and cancer. Recent mornings in the world's most polluted megacity have already seen measures of toxic dust exceed 10 times the World Health Organization's recommended maximum. They could spike far higher during Diwali, when pyromaniac revellers ignite lacs and craws, i.e. a lot, of sparklers and rockets. So, on October the 9th, India's Supreme Court banned all sales of fireworks in the capital. Considering that one study reckons that eight Delhi wallahs die every day as a direct result of pollution, and another that they would live an average of nine years longer if their city met the WHO standards for air quality, one might expect the court order to be met with general relief. But though the order may clear the air, revellers feel it's rained on their parade. Fireworks fenders are certainly unhappy. Diwali should be a bonanza, but they will now have to ship unsold stocks out of the city or pay police heftier-than-usual bribes to sell them under the counter. Libertarians are also angry. Indian courts are as notorious for overreaching as for underperforming. The ban is on the sale but not the use of fireworks and so is useless for protecting public health, the critics say. Seen through the orange-tinted spectacles of Hindu nationalists, it's even been labelled an Islamic conspiracy. Can I just ask on Krakaban, tweeted Chetan Bhagat, a popular novelist, why only guts to do this for Hindu festivals? Soon they'll be banning Hindu cremations too, chimed the governor of Tripura state in eastern India. I spoke to the Booker Prize-winning author Salman Rushdie on The Economist Asks, our weekly chat show, about a creeping obsession with identity politics and what it means to him to be one of Midnight's children, 70 years on from partition. It does seem as if we live in a moment where everybody wants their own country, whether it's the Kurds or the Catalans or every, anywhere you look. You know, People seem to want their own little patch of the earth. I think it indicates a disillusion with the structures that exist. And I think a lot of this internationally, whether it's here or in America or indeed in India, people are reacting because they feel unsupportive of the system that exists. They feel alienated from it. They feel it doesn't represent them. And I think that certainly was a factor in the Trump election. There were were people who just wanted somebody to go in there and smash things up because they felt unrepresented by the system as it existed. You can hear more of me talking to Salman Rushdie by subscribing to The Economist Asks podcast. And we're very pleased to say it's been listed as one of the top five podcasts in helping explain what's going on in the world by Mixcloud. Identity is precious to us, but the latest victims of identity fraud aren't people, they're apps. Crafty developers are ripping off big-name brands and hoodwinking users with imitation apps that look remarkably like the real thing. But as an article in our business section explained, they're likely to be rather full of nasty surprises. Google and Apple police their app stores, but many imposters get through. 
In third-party app stores, unofficial platforms run by someone other than the two tech giants, the problem is even worse. Some of the forgeries look genuine because the brand they impersonate doesn't have its own app. Others just make passable copies and hope users won't spot the difference. The Economist found that half of the 50 top-selling apps in Google Play had fakes. These included ones with tweaked names, My Google Translate rather than Google Translate, and a bogus Netflix app that uses a weird Halloween-themed font for the logo. And once users are conned into downloading a fake, there's a real risk. Fake apps are often stuffed with malicious code. Academics from a research group, Serval, at the University of Luxembourg, estimate that around a fifth of all Android app-based malware is hidden in fake apps. The malware facilitates various money-making schemes. The most egregious are designed to steal the passwords that unlock users' bank accounts. And here's the clincher. Developers can make more money from fake apps than they do from legitimate ones. On dark web forums, hackers and small-time digital advertisers offer developers around $1 per user per year to inject their apps with malicious code. In theory, a single app with 15,000 users, about a tenth of all apps have this many, could bring in roughly $1,250 per month. Well, if the path to finding the right app is so perilous, how can humans ever hope to find the right partner? On our Babbage podcast this week, science correspondents Anano Bhattacharya and Tim Cross discussed how eye colour and smell are just two of the ways our bodies help our poor befuddled minds to settle on the one. So Anano, why smell? What's the theory there? The theory here is that there is a region of the chromosome called the major histocompatibility complex, the MHC, and these genes are involved with our immune response. So the idea is that in some way we should seek out partners who have MHC genes that are different to our own. Well, the now, idea is we can somehow detect this by how they smell. Yes. And so what was the answer? Does it work? In short, no. Overall, he found absolutely no correlation at all between differences in the genes and which odours men found attractive. But there's quite an important nitpick with this study, isn't there? Because he was only looking at male mate choice, in other words, what men found attractive. And you might expect, you know, given that women have to go to all the trouble of actually carrying the baby, they might be a bit pickier than men are. That's right. I mean, even the evidence on whether women are attracted to mates using um, odours in, in humans is a bit mixed. So you may well have sniffed out the person you thought was the perfect mate, but what if it all goes wrong? In a new book reviewed this week in our Books and Arts section, The State of Affairs, Esther Perel argues that modern couples need to rethink how they face the ultimate challenge, infidelity. Since publishing Mating in Captivity in 2006, Ms Perel has become a globe-trotting guru on sex and relationships. She has noticed that no subject fascinates and unnerves people more than infidelity, universally forbidden yet universally practised. With The State of Affairs, she hopes to inspire a more productive conversation about cheating. Infidelity seems to be on the rise, yet public opinion of it is actually harsher than it was a few generations ago. Ms Perel thinks that this is because couples who marry for love invest more of their self-worth in their relationships 
When a marriage is built on emotion rather than pragmatism or duty, it is more vulnerable to the vagaries of the heart and the temptations of Tinder. Sometimes an affair is a signal that a relationship should end, but plenty of adulterers are content with their home lives. Also, the book says, prizing out the stories of happy people who cheat, Miss Perel learns that many adulterers are most excited to discover a new self, one that is creative, erotic, and very much unlike the devoted mum who spends her days chauffeuring her children. Critics have lambasted her for being too soft on the cheaters, but for Miss Perel, it's just being pragmatic. Partners who probe the meaning of an affair are better able to bring into their relationship what might have been missing. Be it candor, eroticism, or an awareness of a partner's allure to others. That said, she's not recommending that otherwise contented couples try a little infidelity to liven things up. I would no more recommend having an affair than I would recommend getting cancer, she says. But just as many people who survive life-threatening illnesses come to appreciate the pleasures of life anew, so too can couples who brave the turmoil of an affair emerge feeling invigorated. So whether you're faithful devotees of the program or just flirting with the idea of subscribing, we'd love you to commit. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Tasting Menu. Don't forget you can read all of the articles mentioned in this week's issue, and you can find all of our other podcasts online. Keep sending in your feedback by email to radio@economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. In London, this is the Economist. 